room. You're listening to uh, on Israel and I'll monitor and I'm going to speak from Tel Aviv. Israeli security forces are uh, prob probably the most experienced and best trained in the world in fighting terrorism. There is no need for uh, false modesty. That's just the way it is in a small country at war with all or some of its neighbors since day one. Its security and intelligence services are rarely caught unprepared. But then there are the exceptions. Over the past 10 days, Israelis were stunned by a succession of terrorist attacks in the heart of three Israeli towns that left 11 people dead. The security forces' failure to prevent the attacks stems in part from the unexpected identity of the killers. The first two were Israeli citizens, extremist uh, Arabs affiliated with the Islamic State, an organization that many believe had been wiped out. The third was a Palestinian copycat from the West Bank. In between uh, wiping the egg uh, off their face, security forces are uh, gearing up for a wave of copycat killings typical of uh, this age of social media. Although most such attacks uh, end in the terrorist death, social media portrays them as heroes. TikTok is particularly popular in exposing every Palestinian and Israeli Arab youth to the glorious sacrifice of these so-called martyrs. Israeli security agencies are uh, experienced in monitoring terrorist organizations, at least those that have uh, a defined infrastructure and a chain of command, but not lone assailants. Sophisticated uh, surveillance technology doesn't always help either. Those plotting such acts have learned to avoid using their cell phones, which makes them automatic targets of uh, interception. Today's podcast hosts a world-leading counterterrorism expert. Professor Boaz Gano established the International Institute for Counterterrorism at what is today known as Reichman University. He has served as a key advisor in intelligence and security and is credited with helping shape Israel's counterterrorism doctrine. He joins us right after this short break. I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it. This past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Now I'm happy and privileged to uh, welcome to our show uh, my friend and colleague, Professor Boaz Ganor. Shalom, Boaz. Thank you for joining us here in On Israel and Al Monitor. Shalom, Ben, and thank you for having me. 
Okay, let's dive into business. Uh, uh, my first question, Professor Ganor, is that uh, there was no advance warning of the latest terrorist attacks on our streets that were carried out by lone assailants, at, at least in the beginning. Unlike the terror wave we experienced some seven years ago when the assailants were mostly armed with knives, this time in the first few days, the weapon of choice was mostly guns and rifles. And I want to ask, do we know enough right now to characterize this latest version of terrorism? We know quite a lot, I have to, uh, to say. Uh, and, and let me zoom out for one moment, just in order to go back to your question. Let me zoom out by saying that practically or generically, there are three types of uh, perpetrators of terrorism. And, and of those three types we saw in the last week, two of them. The first type is uh, the lone attacker, um, the one who's being inspired by a terrorist organization, not necessarily uh, a member of a terrorist organization that was recruited or trained by the organization. The second type is what we call local independent network. And this is a group of uh, lone attackers that have been radicalized together being inspired together by a terrorist organization. And one day together, they decide to commit an attack. This is different from the third type, which is a cell of terrorism. A cell is combined by individual terrorists that have been recruited to the organization, trained by the organization, and sent to their mission with the operational support of the terrorist organization. Thanks God, until now, we didn't have this case in the last uh, two weeks. And we had in Beersheba, the lone attacker that was inspired by ISIS. And in Hedera, the uh, organized the local, excuse me, the local independent network that was also inspired uh, by ISIS. Um, the way to deal with those uh, uh, type of attackers is different, of course, from what we used to know in contending with uh, terrorist uh, cells altogether. Uh, the, main, uh, the main challenge here, as we can imagine, is intelligence, uh, to collect intelligence. Um, intelligence is being based on, two, uh, on, on one basic understanding, which is you try to intercept the secret. You try to intercept a discussion between at least two people that share a secret among themselves, the secret of the attack. You can intercept it by having an agent in the room who's listening to that, and that's what we call humint. Or you can intercept the discussion by listening to their phone conversation or computer conversation, and that's comment. Uh, in lone wolves, uh, you don't have this uh, luxury, I would say, uh, to intercept a discussion because it all starts and ends with the sick mind of one person. And that's the biggest challenge of intelligence in contending with those types of, uh, of attacks. Before we, are, we go on, the, uh, the last uh, few days were characterized by uh, Islamic Jihad that is coming into this uh, equation. But I guess you will tell me, look, we know how to deal with Islamic Jihad. This is, uh, finally, this is organized terror and uh, our Shabak and, and IDF, etc., and uh, and military intelligence know how to deal with it. That's true. And uh, uh, actually, you caught me because I didn't refer uh, to this uh, third attack, which was in Nebrak. And intentionally, I, I disregard this uh, attack because, to, to tell you the truth, 
from what was published, I'm not sure yet what is the nature of this specific attack. Yes, this is an individual attacker, no doubt about that, came with his own car with a gun, uh, automatic gun. But as far as I understand, either he had many uh, uh, supporters that helped the attack, or even more likely in my view, he was organized by uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and not just identifying or being inspired by this organization. As much that this is the case, and I believe we will know in the near future, uh, this would be the third type of attacks, the organized terrorist cell, and rightly so, as you've noted, Israel is uh, quite knowledgeable in dealing with and, and preventing and thwarting these types of attacks. And uh, no doubt that this was a failure. It was an intelligence failure. This is something that the, we would expect that the Israeli intelligence agencies would have known about that and uh, hopefully would uh, uh, prevent it. But to say the truth, when you have hundreds of uh, plots a year, uh, unfortunately, even the best intelligence on earth sometimes misses uh, some intelligence uh, uh, radar uh, signatures and, and, and uh, an attack like that is happening. Of course, you cannot win it all. So if I want to uh, maybe to, to, to analyze everything in, in one piece, so the Beersheva attacker was a Bedouin citizen of Israel, as you said, a lone attacker. The attack in Hadera was the work of two cousins from uh, the Israeli Arab town of Umel Fahem, till now Israeli citizens. And the third uh, was, as you mentioned, the Palestinian from the West Bank, more organized, but the question, the big question, do you see any link between these attacks and their uh, perpetrators that came in, in, in the same uh, time, uh, before Ramadan, yes. before Passover, etc.? Yes, uh, no doubt there is a link, and I would refer to that in a moment. But with your permission, I would like to focus on the Hadera attack, the uh, two cousins uh, that have been radicalized together and being inspired by uh, ISIS. Um, this reminds me, this specific attack reminds me more than the Palestinian uh, uh, West Bank type of attacks. It reminds me the attacks that are being conducted by uh, lone attackers and organized uh, uh, and, uh, and local independent network in Europe, uh, because what we see there are attacks that in most cases conducted by uh, second and third generation Muslim immigrants to Europe, not the first generation, by the way, but the second and the third, uh, which are being more radicalized, more frustrated with the situation and being caught by the incitement and the uh, uh, radicalization material of ISIS. And they go and wage their jihad uh, or the way they understand their jihad in conducting those specific attacks. In many cases, those are uh, close friends or family members. To remind uh, an attack, for example, the attack in San Bernardino in California, uh, a husband and a wife that conducted this attack. Another attack that was inspired by ISIS in Israel a few years ago, two cousins that uh, conducted the attack in Tel Aviv in Sarona uh, uh, neighborhood, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's very, very typical, uh, uh, all those elements of the attack in Hedera and it's similar to a text that we see uh, globally, worldwide. As for your question, yes, there is a common denominator. There is a, uh, uh, some things that connect those attacks together. And I would say this is the volatile atmosphere that we are living in 
uh, in the recent weeks and they are growing uh, as we get into today practically uh, to the month of Ramadan. This is a month that is being regarded as a volatile month for radicals uh, and Islamist jihadists that find this timing as an appropriate time to conduct those types of, uh, of attacks. You can combine to that the uh, higher level of incitement um, coming from both ISIS on one hand uh, that want to show worldwide that they didn't lost his touch and still very dangerous type of terrorist organization uh, that can attack whenever and wherever they want. And of course, the incitement of the uh, Palestinian Islamist jihadists as Hamas and Pakistan Jihad uh, that would like to see a deterioration uh, in the situation in Israel per se, and also uh, in the West Bank in the month of the Ramadan. And also in May, as you remember, we have the uh, uh, anniversary, uh, the Independence Day of Israel uh, and, uh, and other events that are also very volatile. I think that when you combine those together, you see and you understand why there is uh, a raise of concern among the Israeli security agencies and, and uh, among Israeli decision makers. And you can add to that what we know for fact is the imitation factor in which one successful attack um, might lead to other uh, uh, imitation, might serve as a model for other to imitate in, in further attacks. And we didn't speak yet about the, the networks, the social uh, networks that uh, take this, uh, this uh, romantic uh, uh, issue of, uh, of uh, an attacker and brings it to, to, to any, any cell phone in, uh, in the territories and elsewhere. Let's look at the bigger picture. Israel and the world have uh, grown uh, accustomed to uh, fighting terrorism, especially when it's organized. But in recent years, we've been seeing a growing number of individual terrorists not sent by any organization, which makes their plans much harder to detect and foil. Uh, you, you just referred to it. Not only is it hard to obtain intelligence about their plans, they themselves often don't know until shortly before they set out uh, on their mission that uh, they are going to go through with it. How can the world deal with this phenomenon? So Ben, I already shared the bad news with you and with your listeners, uh, saying that intelligence find it very difficult to uh, intercept uh, uh, those types of attacks because in, in many cases, there is no discussion between two people altogether. But now let me share with you the good news. Uh, the Israeli intelligence for sure, but not only Israel, other intelligence services around the world have found uh, some kind of a solution to the problem. And the solution goes back to what you have mentioned a minute ago. These are the social networks. The social networks are playing a very negative role in radicalization processes, in spreading incitement and recruitment and so on and so forth. But also it's a platform for the intelligence services to monitor and to have a preliminary warning before an attack occurs. Let me explain that with your permission. You know what's the difference between a terrorist and a regular criminal? They do the same, they kill, they arson, they extort, but a terrorist actually believes that he's doing that for an altruistic reason, uh, some political uh, goals that he's trying to achieve or uh, religious or ideological goals and so on and so forth. He sees himself or she sees herself as an altruist. The worst uh, condemnation that you can condemn 
uh, a terrorist is to refer to him or to her as a regular criminal, as a person who wants to conduct those atrocities for profit or for other reasons and not uh, arterial uh, motive uh, altogether. Now, this is why it's very important for those terrorists to publish their grievances and their reasons uh, uh, for conducting those attacks before they conduct the attack. Because if uh, their manifesto would not be spread out, if people would not know what was the reason behind this atrocity, they will be regarded as regular criminals. And that's the worst thing that can happen to a terrorist. In organized terrorism, the terrorist cells, the third group that I've mentioned before, the organization is doing that for the terrorists after the attack. They take a photo of them, they, they, they have a video clip or a, 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 many, a written manifesto. And after the attack, either if, uh, regardless by the way, if the terrorists die in the attack or being arrested after the attack, the organization will publish the video clip and we all would know how so-called altruistic this terrorist is. For the lone wolves, they don't have this ability. They need to publish that before the attack. And this can be intercepted and is being intercepted as an intelligence warning before the attack. Even in the attacks that we saw last week, in many cases, there were signs uh, on the social networks before the attack occurs. The person hinted or he practically said that this is inten his intention to do so, the terrorist. So that's uh, uh, practically the good news. You ask me how this phenomenon should be dealt and can be dealt by OSINT, not UMINT, not COMINT, as we mentioned. OSINT is open sources intelligence. And uh, there are many, many successful uh, uh, achievements in thwarting terrorist attacks by using AI, artificial intelligence, big data, and material from social networks. Fascinating, indeed. Um, what, if anything, can be done about the dramatic impact uh, on young, impressionable minds of, you know, TikTok and similar platforms that uh, paint terrorists uh, in superhero colors and celebrate their uh, martyrdom? Well, unfortunately, uh, we all uh, remember our teen uh, age uh, or uh, have our own teens at home. And we know that this is a very fragile period of time, regardless if you are a, a, an Arab, a Muslim, or a, or a Westerner. Uh, um, because at that time, uh, those uh, uh, teens uh, are looking for adventures. They are having, in many cases, extreme views. And it's very, very easy to influence them. And when you have, as you have mentioned, those internet platforms uh, and internet uh, uh, global connection, one can be surrounded with like-minded radicals in no time and be radicalized by them and radicalize them at the same time. That's true. Um, but here, maybe there is another key factor that we need to take under consideration. Most of those inspirations attacks, the first two groups, the, the lone wolves, the, the lone attacker, and the uh, uh, local independent network, the terrorists, not always, but in many cases, do not represent the sentiment of their family. They are doing that against the sentiments of the family. The best examples is in Europe for, uh, in, in those cases that those teens and youngsters that have been radicalized decided to travel to Syria and Iraq and join uh, ISIS there as foreign fighters and the parents didn't know about their intentions. Once they learned about it, we had a few cases that the father actually 
uh, flew after them, trying to get into uh, Syria and to save them from the monster, uh, which means that they do not represent the sentiments of the family. If this is true, and I believe that it is also in reference to the Israeli Arab community and the families of uh, many of those uh, uh, terrorists, uh, um, this is a key factor that you can join hands and for the benefit of the family, but for the benefit of saving their kids from the monsters or from death practically in a terrorist attack, you could work together with the community, with those families in order to identify those bad seeds as early as possible and to uproot them uh, uh, and to uh, actually uh, prevent those terrorist attacks before they occur. On another front, negotiations continue on a, a deal to limit Iran's nuclear program, but uh, the deal doesn't address Iran's role as uh, the main sponsor of terrorism in the region, and Israel insists any agreement that's uh, reached will not uh, tie its hand. Do you think such an agreement uh, would encourage the spread of terrorism in our area? Unfortunately, the answer is positive. Um, we know that Iran is already uh, rooted within many uh, uh, regions of conflicts, not uh, just rooted, actually created some of those regions of conflicts. You could see this in Yemen, uh, uh, South, Saudi Arabia, uh, Gulf countries. Uh, you could see that, of course, in our region, either from the Palestinian uh, uh, frontier or the Lebanese Shiite Hezbollah uh, frontier. You can find it in Africa in, in many conflict areas and so on and so forth. They are not shying out from intervening and promoting their uh, uh, Shiite hegemony wherever and whenever uh, they can. They are ready also to spend a lot of money while doing that. Hezbollah is getting hundreds of millions of dollars every year uh, from Iran, from the Revolutionary Guards. Um, and uh, no doubt in my mind that when this agreement will be signed uh, and uh, the economical sanctions will be lifted from Iran, they would have much more money that they would be able to spread and to invest in promoting their interest via terrorism, via subversive activity against legitimate regimes in those countries. Uh, and therefore, we should take under consideration that we'll see a raise of Shia terrorism and even Sunni terrorism, which is being uh, supported by Iran. And on the nuclear front, what about this? Israel says uh, it is preparing a so-called military option against the Iranian nuclear program, although it has been uh, underplaying such a move for now. Do you see it, uh, it, is, it, it as a relevant option? Does Israel have the ability in 2022 to block Iran's nuclear ambitions by force? So let me answer uh, with an anecdote, with your permission. Uh, and I will go back in time to the year 2010. Um, I was invited, I was spending there my sabbatical year at Stanford and uh, on my way back home, I stopped in New York City and I got a phone call practically from the White House. And, uh, and I was asked to come the day after uh, to meet with one of uh, the most important people there in the White House. It's not the president, let me say. Um, and I didn't know why, what they wanted to talk with me, but I was of course ready to go. And when I got there, I was surprised by this person that he asked me a question. And the question that he posed to me was, 
would a yellow light be enough for Israel to make a decision to attack Iran? My first answer was very humble, not typical to an Israeli. And I said, why do you ask me? I'm not a decision maker. I'm, I'm a scholar um, and I'm an expert on terrorism. Why do you ask me this question? He said, look, I, I, I would like to know your opinion. I, of course, we have our own direct uh, tracks with the Israeli government. It doesn't come instead of that. That's on top of that. What is your uh, approach to that question? And I said, if you ask me, even a green light should not be enough for Israel to make such a decision. And this took the person by surprise. He said, really? United States is giving a green light to Israel to attack Iran, and you think that Israel should not conduct the attack? I said, yes, and you know why? Because of three reasons. The first reason is, although I'm not uh, uh, knowledgeable about the overall Israeli uh, um, um, military and air force capabilities, uh, this is a secret which I'm not exposed to, but I tend to believe that Israel is incapable of uprooting and eliminating all the uh, uh, nuclear facilities that are being scattered around Iran today uh, in an underground tariff. Uh, and uh, I don't think that Israel is capable to destroy all of them simultaneously in a strike like that. Um, Israel is probably capable to destroy some of it, uh, to uh, actually harm the uh, nuclear efforts of Iran maybe severely, but this will drag their capabilities, what, a year uh, backwards, two years, three years? What would happen the day after? The day after, they would come forward and say, we have been attacked, and now we have all the legitimacy to run for the bomb. This is the first reason why I think Israel should not do that. The second reason I said to him, I do know what the proxies of Iran are preparing for Israel, in case that this would happen. And I refer mainly to Hezbollah. At that time, Hezbollah had a few tens of thousands of rockets aimed toward Israel. Today, we are talking about 150,000 rockets. This is an unprecedented arsenal by a non-state actor. Even most of the states around the world doesn't have such an arsenal. And this is the long arm of Iran that uh, practically are planning to use that if and when uh, they will be attacked by Israel. And this uh, would cause an enormous damage in Israel. The third reason I've said is that, yes, I do not underestimate the threat of Iran becoming a nuclear uh, uh, regional superpower. Iran is uh, not shying out from the fact that they have an operative goal to eliminate Israel from Earth. Uh, I don't think there is another precedent in the world that one state is declaring loud and clear that they have an operative goal to eliminate from Earth another country. But yes, that's what the Iranians are doing. And I do believe that if they would have the capability, they might use that uh, under certain circumstances. But before they would do that, they would use those capabilities to threaten their neighbors, to uh, occupy territories, to uh, to topple down regimes. I wouldn't want to be a leader of Saudi Arabia or the Gulf countries or uh, uh, Kuwait or, or any uh, uh, other regional uh, uh, countries when Iran becomes nuclear. So it's a goal of the whole region.
to see to it that Iran would not become a nuclear regional superpower or the whole world, if I may say so. And I don't really understand, I said to this person, why do you expect Israel to take those hot potatoes from the fire for the whole region, for the whole world, pay an enormous price as an outcome of that? If you want something to be done, it should be done as an international alliance standing together against Iran uh, for this purpose. And this is, exactly, this is exactly the, my next question. Uh, by the way, it's a great story. If the military option isn't relevant, what would you advise? Do you think the talk that we are hearing in recent weeks about establishing a NATO-like anti-Iran alliance in the Middle East between Israel and uh, Sunni Muslim states is feasible? Not only that I believe that it is visible, I think it's the only uh, uh, relevant option on the table. Um, United States, unfortunately, become, uh, um, I would say, almost irrelevant uh, because of this concept of isolationism. And, uh, and I'm actually referring to a bipartisan phenomenon. I think that Obama was isolationist. Uh, Trump uh, was uh, having uh, uh, a lot of declarations, but he never put the money where his mouth is, meaning he was not ready to stand uh, and to use military force, even when the Aramco uh, 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 oil fields were bombed by Iran and through the Houthis, the proxies of Iran and so on and so forth, or when the American drone was shot down by, by Iran. So the, the, Trump was also isolationist in this regard, and Biden is also reluctant to be involved uh, in regions of conflicts altogether. I don't blame them. I'm just describing that. If I would be an American, maybe I would also be an isolationist. But the message to the region is quite clear. The Middle East is quite clear. There is no big brother or uh, uh, the big brother is sleeping and uh, is not necessarily going to uh, uh, join forces and, and back up uh, the region at time of need vis-a-vis -vis Iran. I think this is the reason why we saw the Abraham Accords being signed. It's not uh, just a Trump request or whatever. This is a real interest of the Gulf countries to look for, if not the big brother, so at least a small, strong brother that might be of help whenever they would need that. So the concept of building a second NATO, the concept of building a military alliance is the basis, in my view, of the Abraham Accords. And I think that's the only thing that can materialize. With your permission, uh, uh, Ben, let me share with you a short anecdote, another anecdote as well. In 2015, I had the opportunity to meet uh, another American uh, prominent uh, uh, person that was engaged in the talks in Geneva. And uh, me and few of my colleagues have been briefed by this person about the, uh, it was a few months before signing the first agreement. And uh, we were briefed about uh, the situation there. And, and our American friend actually said that he's not sure that this agreement will be signed because the negotiations are very difficult. And when I was asked to comment on that, I said in a very typical Israeli rudeness, I would answer to you in America, not in English. Read my lips, you are going to sign the agreement with Iran. So he was furious at me, he said, how dare you? I was very transparent and shared with you this, uh, the, these concerns that we have, and I'm not sure that I would sign, and you are outsider, you are telling me you would sign that? I said, yes, you know why? because the Iranians need that uh, agreement desperately, economically, and for other reasons they need it, and they would sign it. They're the best negotiator on earth, 
just try to buy a carpet from them and you would understand how difficult it is. But at the end of the day, since they need it so badly, they would sign the agreement. But I have a question to you, I said. Are you preparing yourself to the day that you would find that they maybe deceived you and they ran for the bomb in a confidential manner? What you would do then? So uh, he asked me, do you have any recommendation? I said, I have two recommendations. A, build now the second NATO. Build now an alliance that will monitor Iran on a daily basis that would see that they are not crossing or not uh, turning a blind eye to the commitments that they took upon themselves. And if they do, the alliance would do whatever is needed to do in order to destroy those capabilities, maybe with an American support or uh, as an independent type of activity. The second recommendation I said, if uh, in the Second World War, the first NATO based their uh, uh, policy and strategy on the concept of MED, mutual assured destruction, you need to develop another strategy should, that should be called IED, Iranian assured destructions. The Iranians should know that there is an alliance out there just waiting for them to make this mistake, and they are committed and determined to destroy Iran if and when they would have a bomb and, God forbid, there to try to use it against any member of this alliance country. So, Baz Ganur, it was such an amazing uh, conversation. Uh, it's a pity time. Uh ran uh, out, but I thank you very much for joining us here in uh, On Israel and Al Monitor. Toda Raba, Professor Ganor. Toda Raba, thank you for having me. Thank you very much. We'll take a very short break and be back right, right after it. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and the Normal Soup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. staying with us. Professor Baz Ganor, uh, you don't agree with me that we are uh, actually, we don't know, Israeli uh, security forces uh, don't know anything about uh, or did not know anything about this wave, this new brand, new wave of terror. He said uh, that we, uh, we, have, we can uh, uh, speak about three kinds of terrorists. The, the first one is the lone attacker, the lone wolf. He's inspired by a, an organization or, a, or a, an agenda, but he's, he, he acts lonely. No one knows anything about what he's going to do. The second option is a local independent network. It's two friends or three friends. They're not connected to an organization, but, uh, but they work between them. And the third option is a cell of a, a, a terrorist organization that was recruited, trained, and gets its information and orders from a hierarchy within a terrorist organization. 
the first attack in Beersheba was, according to Professor Ganur, by a lone attacker. The second in Hedera was by the, by the second option, the cell, the local cell, but it was not connected directly to, to an organization. And this was the reason that, uh, that, that uh, because of this, the, the Shabak, the Shin Bed, the Israeli Shin Bed, uh, did not have any uh, early warning about these uh, attacks. And Professor Ganor said that the main challenge of in nowadays uh, of the, the intelligence organizations is to be able to gather information from the first two options. It's not, uh, it's, it's not very complicated to, uh, to detect uh, uh, infrastructure of terror. This is uh, Israeli expertise. But it's, it's a challenge to get someone that is acting alone or two or three friends that are uh, in the neighborhood, not connected to an uh, external uh, terrorist organization. And uh, he said that the bad news is that uh, you need the, 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 the social networks in order to, uh, to, to detect them. And, but the good news is that because they don't have an organization that will later, after the attack, uh, they will be probably killed in, will we'll, uh, have a, a, a video or something from their a, a perspective to, uh, to put in the social networks. If they work alone, they have to do it in advance. They don't want uh, to, be, to be dealt like, like simple uh, 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 criminals. They are martyrs. So they have to, to do something in advance in order to, to leave their, uh, their uh, legacy behind. And this is the, 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 the way the, the, the intelligence organizations have to look for this in order to get any early warning. Because the other way to intercept the planning uh, is very difficult. Uh, it is uh, most of the time you don't have no SIGINT or HUMINT, you don't have a, 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 an agent uh, working with them and they don't uh, connect with the outer sources. So actually you have to look for the OSINT, which means the open source intelligence, but you have to know, you have to, to have the expertise to know how to look for this OSINT and how to translate it in order to understand when do we have a case of someone that is trying to hint that he's going for an attack and he wants to leave behind him the legacy or legacy of a martyr, of a, of a freedom fighter, etc. When we spoke about the, the reason that uh, these many kinds of, of attacks before, because after these three, three attacks, uh, now Israel finds itself in a, in a semi a battle with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, especially from uh, northern Samaria. We had in the, in the last uh, three or four days two battles between Israeli forces and uh, Islamic Jihad uh, terrorists. All, all was ended in the same result, the killing of the terrorists. So uh, I asked the Professor Gano, what are the reasons that brought all these kinds of terror in, in the same time, uh, just uh, one or two weeks ago in Israel, and he said that the, the links that connect uh, all these cases is the volatile atmosphere. 
in the recent weeks towards Ramadan. Uh, because the sad case is that Ramadan, this holy uh, Muslim uh, uh, holiday of, of peace and quiet, became a favorite date for terrorist organizations uh, that ask, uh, maybe want to prove that they are still here, live and kicking, including ISIS, that the first two attacks were committed by people or terrorists that were uh, supporting ISIS. The second part of the conversation was uh, dedicated to the Iranian case, the, the terror spreading and the nuclear uh, Iranian infrastructure. And Professor Ganor surprised me when he said that the, the Israeli military option is not so relevant that uh, he, he thought uh, this way even in 2015 and even before. The only uh, answer to, uh, to the Iranian uh, approach towards uh, nuclear uh, ability, military ability, is uh, a new or a second NATO in the Middle East that will be headed uh, by Israel, supported by the United States, with all the Sinai Sunni uh, uh, states that are uh, that the Iranian nuclear power is more endangering them than Israel. He said that if Iran will be nu nuclear, the leaders it, it does not want to to get to be a, a, a Saudi leader or an Emirati leader. It will be a lot more uh, dangerous than than being an Israeli leader. I thought it was a very interesting conversation and I uh, hope you enjoyed it and hope to found, find you here next week, next time, next uh, hour and place in On Israel, in Al Monitor. I'm Ben Kaspi from uh, Tel Aviv. Thank you, take care and bye-bye.